people. So uh, tonight's guest is an Emmy and a DGA award-winning director. You might have seen uh, you know, his films online and his most recent uh, offer, The Perfection, was released on Netflix and it literally took the world by storm because when I saw this trailer, I was like, what the hell am I watching? <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Shepard. Richard, thank you for joining the show tonight. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So uh, could you tell me a little bit about, you know, how, how did you get into film direction? Was it, did you have that one moment where you were like, okay, I, I want to make films. Did you have any moment as such, or was it something that you ended gradually? I'll tell you, I, um, when I was a kid, I loved movies. My dad was not, um, neither of my parents were in the film business, but my dad loved movies and we would talk about movies and go to the movies all the time. And at somewhere around age 13, I decided I wanted to be a film director. It was, it was sort of at 13, 14. It was after seeing Apocalypse Now. Um, so I must have been 14. I, I just was like, oh, my God, what is that? How, how can anyone do that? And just to learn that there was someone whose job it was to, to actually make that. You know, before that, I just didn't understand, as most kids don't how a movie's made, it just existed. But after seeing that movie, I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta do this. And so my parents got me a Super 8 camera and uh, back before video even, this is how old I am. And, uh, uh, and all through high school, I was making movies. You know, I would, get, I would get the kids in my class to do bake sales. We would like make cookies and sell them on the streets of New York. Uh, and raise money to buy the Super 8 film. You know, it was, uh, it, we were hustling even back then. And, uh, and so I almost knew I wanted to be a filmmaker from that age and, and, and really it's all I wanted to do. I went to college for filmmaking, but um, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to get into directing and we can talk about that. For me, it was always from a writing standpoint. I always was writing, I always loved writing. Mm -hmm. and, in a, and in a way as a screenwriter, if you write a really great script, and albeit it's not that easy to do it, but if you do write a really great script, you have an enormous amount of power because you, you own this thing. So you can force yourself to be the director if you have enough will, you know, to, to do that. Yeah. And, 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 and also, of course, if you can write a good screenplay, it kind of shows that you have a sense about how movies are done meaning that you have a sense of structure, you have a sense of pace, you have a sense of character, all the things you kind of need other than maybe the visual language, but you have the emotional and storytelling that if a script is really good, it, it kind of is a blueprint on how the movie is going to be made. So, and of course, as the writer, you know these characters as well as anyone. So, so uh, until the actor then knows it better than you. But other than that, so you're coming in from a pretty powerful position. So from very early on, I was writing scripts and, you know, through all the ups and downs of my career, and I've had real ups and downs in a 30-year career. I've had my phone turned off because I couldn't afford to pay my phone bill after having made two movies. You know, like it is a tough, tough business. Um, but I've somehow managed, and I think one of the reasons I have is that I've always been able to write, um, and 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 thus 
create some, I'm not waiting for someone to give me something. Mm-hmm. I, I'm creating on my own. That's a long answer to your question. And I'm, I'm sure I veered off of what you originally asked. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you kind of switched into uh, the next question I was going to ask as well, which is amazing because I was going to talk to you about writing. So you've written, you know, the, the feature films that you've done, I, uh, from what I saw, you've written almost everything except... I've written, every, I've written everything that I've, that I, you know, my own movies I've written. I, for, for, for TV, I direct a lot of television pilots, the first episode of pilots, and those obviously I don't write. But yeah. um, uh, and I like doing that, and we can talk about that. But I have written everything, and and I choose to do my own stuff. You know, it's I, I will I will still read screenplays if they're sent to me. Mm-hmm. You know, that are trying to get financing or trying to get a director, um, uh, or off, or some are offered to me. Like, here's a movie that's going to be made. Do you want to direct it? But in general, there's been like two or three in 30 years that I have been like, yes, let me try and get that. And, uh, you know, I never did. But because they're usually the very best screenplays. So in general, I just figure I might as well write my own yeah. weird, little, weird little movies. And, 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 and it's very gratifying, quite frankly, to be able to, to have that happen. Do you uh, have the sense of, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, ownership when it comes to you know making your own movies but like you've written the screenplay itself like you said it's a blueprint and you feel more uh how do you call it more closer to the characters like you know these characters in and out and uh, thereby that kind of gives you more control i guess when it comes to the direction stage but what kind of you know uh, when what makes you click and say all right now that's a screenplay i want to direct when you've read something that's written by someone else well, I do, when I'm reading for TV pilots, I read a lot of scripts because there's a lot of TV pilots. And um, uh, at the end of the day, I just go for something that, that feels like the, 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 the storytelling is really smart and original. You know, there's plenty of, you can, you can find the same thing over and over again everywhere you look, you know, and there are better action directors than me. They're better comedy directors than me. They're better thriller directors than me. I'm only good in what I do, which is my, what, what, what attracts me. What, why, do I, why do I want to watch this? What, do I, what can I bring to it? If, if it's a television pilot, how can I help the writer achieve what I think he or she is trying to say, but lift it up? And, and, and being a writer helps me because... I can try and solve some problems of the script, not only visually, but, but from character points of view and from storytelling points of view. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think I'm, I do pretty well at pilots. But the fact is like, if you're a director who wants to direct movies and you're looking at scripts that are being sent or your friends have written scripts that you're looking at and you're deciding, should I do this? Should I do this short film? Should I do this? What should I do? Well, it's good to work. So when you're not working, sometimes just work is a good reason to say yes, you know. And but 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 past that, you know, it's like what can you bring to it? What can you specifically bring to it? What 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 style? What energy? What point of view? You know, uh, I directed on this American television show called Girls for for years, and it was 
you know, run by women. It was about young women. And it was odd that there was this yeah. somewhat older man working on the show. And I did a lot of episodes, but I always brought up different point of view to the, to the party from the very first stages of reading the scripts. I would argue about things if there were things that felt wrong to me or emotionally they were avoiding things. And, and, and so it's an, that's what I was bringing. So that's a reason, oh, well, that's why we'll keep working with someone like that gotcha. because they're bringing something to the party in, in, a, in a constructive and you know, collaborative way. Obviously in yeah. television, the writer has more power than the director. In films, the director has more, writer, more power than the writer. And if you're the writer director of a film, you have all the power in the world, which is great but every fuck up is yours. You can't blame anyone. You have to take the good and the bad. Those good reviews are great. Those bad reviews are pretty hard because they're, they're coming for what you're saying. I kind of want to come back to that point, you know, later in the chat about how, how you deal with reception in your movies. But uh, let's go back to the start. So when it comes to, you know, film directing, you, you are basically involved from the get-go, from the start to the finish. How much time do you spend prepping for a film like how much time do you spend in pre-production? How important is that to you? Well, I mean, let's use the perfection as an example when we're talking about stuff like that, because the perfection was a movie I made, you know, three years ago now, um, uh, was a ind independently financed uh, horror thriller. You know, at, at first we thought we would be able to raise like $10 million and make it in 40 days and, this and that. And then at the end of the day, we ended up with like $4 million and made it in 24 days. So we had a really, we had a really um, rethink how we were approaching everything. So, so, you know, you have to be nimble in that regard. And so instead of eight weeks of prep, it was four and a half weeks of prep. So it was almost like a TV pilot, you know, so I had to use a lot of tricks I had learned about, you know, using my time extremely wisely. And I had an advantage in that I knew this, I didn't have to spend the time you normally have to spend in pre-production if you haven't written the script, learning the script inside out. Because that's what you have to know. You have to know every inch of that script so that when you're on the set, you're thinking about, well, that scene and the scene that comes before it and the scene that comes afterwards. And if the actors have the questions about their motivation, you have the whole movie. But if you've written it, you have those answers. You don't have to study that. So by a, being a writer-director, prep in a, in a weird way can be slightly less. But you have to use your prep really smartly. You know, you have to, you have to give yourself enough time to find the right locations and understand that those locations are a character in the movie and are huge decisions that can't be sort of taken lightly. Like sometimes people are like, oh, you just need a restaurant. Here are two that are easy to work with. And if you have no money and they're saying these two will let you shoot for free, well, that's great. You're going to pick one of those two and they're going to be great. But if you have some money and you can rent the location, then you really need to think about what is the restaurant saying? You know, can these characters afford this restaurant? What is it going to look like? Or the you know is the color of the walls going to be 
distracting because I know the caustic aggregators are wearing this color clothing. So what will the what will happen? Is the street outside busy because it's supposed to be not busy? Like all these questions you have to think about and you have to sort of you're thinking even further or more than anyone else in a way working on the show. So you have to work with your production designer, work with your cinematographer, work with your locations people and really figure that out. And that does take time. You know, the perfection I, if if people haven't seen it, but the second half of the movie takes place at this music school in 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 outside of Boston, and it's sort of like this old school, beautiful wood school. And I couldn't find one place that worked. So that location in the movie is actually three different locations that we filmed to make it look like one location. You know, so. That was because I very specifically knew what every single scene needed to feel like. And so we found locations that looked great for this scene and that scene, but totally didn't work for something else. So that's about, that's where pre-production and, 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 and you can even look at that as for short films or true indie films that ha don't have a million dollars, but have a hundred thousand dollars. You have to be thinking about all of the things you have to tell story wise. And you obviously have to make compromises, especially if you don't have money, you know, you have to make compromises, but at the same time, you also have to say, well, listen, this is important to me. This scene is the key scene of the movie. And if I only have enough money to rent three locations, then this is one of the ones I'm going to spend money on because it's so important and I'll, I'll figure out something. I'll walk on the street. It's free. I'll shoot that stuff on the street or whatever. And when you're doing an indie feature, like the perfection, sometimes I'm like, well, this is a location that's super important and I have half a day left. What am I going to do? And I'm like, well, this scene isn't that important where it takes place. So guess what? It'll take place in the park across the street from the location that's really important. It yeah. won't stop the story. And it's just being, it's being smart about how you spend your time. Gotcha. So you mentioned, uh, you know, the production designer, cinematography. You had, you know, as a director, you have to uh, converse with them, coordinate things. So how well do you recommend they know the screenplay? I mean... Again, if you're working in a professional environment, they're going to by the nature of their professionalism. Um, if you're doing like a short, it's possible that the people who are working on it just don't have the time because they're in school or they've got a job. And so that there's a different there's a different level of that. But, you know, the person who's your camera person, your DP, he or she should know you have should have spent enough time with them, even on a short, let alone a feature, enough time with them talking your way through what you want. Not necessarily like, I want this steady cam and I want a, a dolly shot. More just like, what do I want this? I want this scene to feel terrifying. How can we figure that out? I want it to be disoriented. Should we shoot it handheld? You know, just big questions like that. And, you know, in prep on a feature, your DP is with you base and your production, your production designer sometimes starts on location before you uh, because they're, they're coming, they're going to work with the location manager to when you land in that city, yeah. like in, in the, in the perfection we shot in, in Vancouver and Shanghai, but in Vancouver, I landed there and the production designer had already been working for a week with the location manager. So he was just like, here, let's go look day one, let's go start looking for this music academy, you know, because he knew that the, we had to start checking stuff off the list of what we, what we have. So he definitely knew. And sometimes, by the way, 
it surprises you that the DP or the costume designer or the, a the assistant director or sometimes the prop guy or the makeup artist, sometimes they'll catch something in your script that you've written that you didn't realize. You know, it's the weirdest thing. They'll be like, well, I mean, she just said she, she was uh, uh, running to catch it here, to, to meet her. Shouldn't she be sweaty? And you're like, oh, well, she should if she's saying she ran to meet her. You know, these things that you may not have actually. Yeah. So uh, you have to be open to everything. You always have to, as a director, you have to listen, 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 because good ideas come from anywhere and, 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 and you just have to be open to them. And I think sometimes directors get, they're, they're almost nervous, so they're in a tunnel vision and they don't want to hear this stuff. And, and I understand that because there's a huge amount of pressure every day of, of what you have to achieve. But if you can open your brain for a minute, it, it, it's amazing what you can hear and your collaborators. That's why making movies, I think, is so fun because if you find a group of people who you like working with, they, they start to understand you as a filmmaker. They start to understand your personality and they understand what what you're going for really. And so they can start bringing stuff to the table that you're like, that's such a cool idea. Yes, exactly. And you can still, if it's not a cool idea, they're fine. You can say, thank you, but that I don't want to, you know, shoot it upside down. I want to shoot it right, you know, whatever. But uh, you have to just be open to this stuff. Brilliant. Uh, what about performances? So, you know, once you do go into, uh, into production, you're basically working with the actors and you got to uh, basically, you know, uh, channel them to uh, you know, deliver the performances that you need. And taking the perfection as an example, uh, Alison Williams' character, she just blew me away. How did you orchestrate that performance? Like, how did you elicit that? Well, I mean, I'm gonna just be honest here, which is that a good director has cast really good actors in his or her movie. A lot of times when directors have to direct actors, they're directing either children or people who've never acted before ever, or dogs. Like, in, if you're, if you, you know, <laughs> if, if you've hired a really good actor, they're coming 98% ready to work mm -hmm. and ready to do their part. And what you're doing is shading them. You're, you're giving them, you're moving them a little bit, like finding a way to get them where they want to go or where you want them to go, but just pushing them a little bit. You're not creating. You're not on set. Like, think about your mother dying. Okay, action. Like, you're not doing that. You're, you're, you've cast the right people. Now, when you've cast these people, you need to spend some time with them before you shoot. I spend a lot of time with my actors reading over the script, not necessarily rehearsing, but reading the script out loud. This is what I do. Some people do it. I mean, everyone's different. Yeah. For me, it's about spending as much time as I can with the actors talking about the character and talking about each scene mm -hmm. and what it's supposed to mean. And to do it in, in before you shoot, even if it's a few days that you have, it, it's hugely helpful because you, you can identify problem areas that they have before you get to set. Because once you're on set, every minute is like tension. You're like, how many minutes of the day do I have to get what I have to get? And I don't want to spend 30 minutes talking about a line that's bugging an actor because they don't like it or it feels wrong. But if I'm sitting with them in, in, a, in a coffee shop and we're reading the script out loud, and sometimes I'll just read with them. I'll play every other part, you know. But they can say to me, I don't, I, why am I 
why am I going to eat chocolate right now? I'm diabetic, you know, and you're like, oh, yeah, that makes no sense. And you can adjust it or whatever their questions are deeper questions like how angry should I be here? And you yeah. can talk about it ahead of time. So I like to do a huge amount of work ahead of time, both talking about the script, but also like making sure their wardrobe is right. That's a big deal that I think people don't even realize. Like you as a director need to have approved the wardrobe before the actor ever sees it. Because the wardrobe is the very first decision the actor sees that the director has made. So if they walk into that wardrobe trailer or room with the costume person and all the wardrobe feels wrong for their character, like they're supposed to play someone very conservative, but all the dresses are kind of sexy, like they're going to go, well, who, who, what character am I supposed to play? This isn't what I'm supposed to play. But if they walk in and those clothes that you've seen already and you've approved and you've talked to the costume designer about, they work really well for the character, then the actors are like, oh yeah, I can put this dress on or I can put these clothes on. And I, I, for the first time, I can see myself really physically as this character. And so that goes a huge way to making sure they A, understand that you know what the character is and that they now start knowing what the character is. And then by talking through the script and all of this, so that when you're on set, you, you're dealing with subtlety. Like Alison Williams and Logan Browning, the other woman in the movie, you know, they knew their character. They had taken cello lessons. They knew how to play the cello. You know, they had spent a long time working on this movie before we shot, and it was a low-budget movie. You know, they, no one was making any money, but they were very passionate about it. So when we got to work, we didn't have much time. I was honest with them. I'm like, look, this is not a great schedule. I wish we had another 10 days. You know, we're going to have to hustle. There's not going to be take nine. You know, we're going to do two to three or takes. And if super important and we don't get there, we'll do four takes. But we're not going to be doing nine takes. So you have to be ready on take one. And yeah. a lot of that is, I was just reading about Stanley Kubrick. And they asked him why he did so many takes. And he said, I did so many takes because the actors didn't know their lines. Oh. And yeah. I think that's interesting because you can know your lines, but not really know them. So... So part of it is discussing with the actors how prepared you're coming in so that not only do you know your lines, but you know them, you deeply know them, you know what they really mean. So we're not spending five takes just warming you up. That, that, that one take, if that's all I'm gonna get, you should be good at it. So my directing of actors is all in the preparation and putting them in a headspace so they can do their best work. And then of course, um, being smart on the set about how you direct actors. And one thing I think a lot of filmmakers do, and I, I really think this is a major mistake, and I want to just say it because it's like one of my pet peeves, is a lot of times you're on a set and you're, you're behind the camera, you're, at, you're holding a, a monitor, you're, not, you're far enough away from the actor that you actually have to speak up for them to hear it. And if you give a piece of direction like that, it's a disaster. So if I'm behind the camera, and now if I'm behind the camera and I'm saying, uh, pick up the cup in your left hand, not your right hand, that's fine because that's a continuity thing or whatever. But if I'm behind the camera or far enough away from them and I'm like, you need to be sadder when you say that uh, you, were, you missed your brother's graduation. If I say that out loud for the rest of the crew to hear, 
All the actor is now thinking about is that the rest of the crew is looking at them to see if they're going to play that line sadder. So it it inhibits them. So what I end up doing is I walk over to the actor and I whisper in their ear the direction. So no one knows, no one understands other than me and the actor what my direction is. And I also tend to only give one piece of direction per take. If you go over and give an actor four notes, they're only going to do one or two of them. So I usually give one note, maybe two, per take, so you don't inundate them with with stuff. You have to be very, you have to treat actors as the special people they are. They are truly, to open up that much emotionally and to be that honest, they are sensitive people. They may come off sometimes as not sensitive or egotistical or whatever, um, but that's all a defense mechanism to their vulnerability. Yeah. And your job is to make it the nicest environment you can for them to work. You have to be pleasant. You have to be decisive. And you have to be there as a, a father or mother figure to them uh, and to, to treat them with love, but also with some level of strictness, almost like a child. That's brilliant. <laughs> But just hearing about uh, you know, the wardrobe, that's something that I never really, you know, it never struck me, but looking at it the way that, you know, from the perspective that you just opened up right now, it makes complete uh, sense. And I think we had a question uh, in the comment section about uh, whether a look test helps, uh, you know, with, with the costume designer, even on a tight budget. A what test? A look test, basically a, a costume test, I guess. Yes, I mean, listen, Sometimes you have to do wardrobe tests. Like if you're doing a television pilot, they 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 need the the company financing the show needs to see the actors in the wardrobe. And on certain movies, on bigger movies, they do too. It's just sort of like they want to make sure the actors look good or whatever. On a small indie movie or on a short or whatever, I'm I'm a big fan of getting the actors in the wardrobe taking photos of them, sometimes shooting them. You don't have to, but if you can get them, if you have the inclination or the actors have the time or you have the money to get them in their wardrobe and photograph them, again, the more time they spend in that wardrobe, the, the, the more they're starting to see their character. And they're like, you know, my character wouldn't wear high heels. They'd wear flats or my hair looks better down then up and I actually thought it would be up but it looks better down in this outfit which I love which is the character so a lot of that if, again the more time you can spend with your actors in wardrobe the the better it is because they're then going to walk as I was saying before like which restaurant are you going to pick for the location if you pick the right restaurant and then you actually spend the time to pick the right extras who are going to play the waiters and the customers. Now, you don't have to spend three hours with this. Just, you know, who you're picking and how you're going about this. Just to, to, to spend enough time on it to say, yes, that person looks like it would eat at that restaurant. This person doesn't look like, this person looks too sophisticated to eat at this shitty restaurant. Or this person looks too shitty to eat at this sophisticated restaurant. But if you can do all of these things and make these decisions, so when the actor walks on the set, they go, this restaurant looks like what I imagined in my head. And that's, that's the exact type of waiter that I was described in the script, like a, an arrogant, mean waiter with a mustache. God, that's an arrogant, mean waiter with a mustache. Like every single thing. And 
because it's all fake, because the actors are trying to find reality in a very fake environment. There's a boom guy holding a thing. There's people behind cameras. Someone's texting someone. You know, it's like, it's like there's a million distractions. But if they can focus on what they need to focus on in a way that they believe that space is real, their clothes are real, the other actors are real, then you're really ahead of the game. You're, you're like, they're going to do really good work. It, it never ceases to me, amaze me. And I would also go as far as this for directing. If you're having a hard time figuring out how to block a scene, how to stage a scene, more than not, you're in the wrong location that the right location dictates um, blocking in a way that totally works most of the time. But in the wrong location or that the furniture is placed the wrong way and you can't figure like, I can't figure out how she's supposed to leave the room and come back, but now I'm adding four shots. How do I do this by adding only two shots and how do I get them close? Like, if you can't figure that out organically, you and the actors about where, and the camera person, then then the, the space is wrong or the furniture is wrong. And you may have to take back up, kick everyone off the set for two minutes, move the furniture around. Like, again, if you've done your homework and if you prepared correctly, then when they walk onto that set, not only are they comfortable, but you're comfortable and you've thought about it enough to know, man, they're going to go walk, out, leave this shot. They're going to end up perfectly in that reflection of that mirror. I don't have to add an extra shot. Boom. Like, that's my blocking, that's the thing. They're happy, I'm happy, and we can finish on time. <laughs> this is amazing, because you're saying so many things that I, I have these questions listed down, and you're shifting from one to the other. So I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> or annoying, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I do have quite a list, so. Yeah, okay, fine. good. <laughs> I just kind of, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, genre. So you've worked with, you know, in, in multiple genres as well, but I kind of want I want to focus on thriller. So about, you know, when it comes to pacing, I mean, uh, not just thrillers, it, it, it uh, applies to basically every single genre. But how, how do you, uh, you know, from the get-go, from, from the production stage itself, do you shoot with the pacing in mind? Like, do you edit as you shoot? How does that process work for you? Well, if I'm writing a thriller, I like to, when I'm writing it, I like to listen to thriller music. Mm -hmm. um, personally, some people can't do that. I like to listen to soundtracks sometimes because it keeps me in the pace level that I want. Like mm -hmm. I, I will pick a soundtrack that is similar to the energy that I want to write, write the script at. Or even if I'm listening to rock and roll or music or punk or whatever, is it, is it the right energy? This, like this, this feels like the right energy. So if I write to it, it helps me in a way. But when you're shooting, you have to be aware. Like, if you're bored while you're shooting something, that's a problem. Like, if you're like, this scene's slow. Like, why am I, this is slow. Like, you have to correct that. And yes, you know you can make it less slow with editing. And, but, but it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to. You should do your best. Now, that doesn't always work. Sometimes you're like, fuck, this is, this is not the pace I want. And I've tried four different ways to get it to be quicker and it can. So, like, I'm just going to have to figure something out later. You know, and editing is so critical for thriller, for, for any genre, really, obviously. And I love editing. Um, I love writing and I love editing. I think production's a pain in the ass. How, how long, like, do you edit your own movies or uh, how, how does that process take place, like? Are you well, with the editor? I always, I, I, some directors like to have an editor 
put together the movie. They like to come see it. They like to give notes and then they like to leave and they like to come back and see their notes done. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not from that school. I'm from the school of, I shoot the movie, the editor assembles it and I give them free reign to assemble the movie however they want. Like I don't give them notes about, I tell them to use whatever shots they want to, don't use shots they don't want to, don't look at which takes I like, just you make your, make your version of the movie and th because you're going to show me ideas I hadn't thought about. I know exactly how I see this movie put together, and I can eventually get to that if I have to go back. But I'd rather be surprised in many ways than... Okay. than th th so I'll look at an editor's assembly, and a lot of times it's not great, but there'll be things in it that, like, holy shit, that... Like in The Perfection, the whole cello love scene the intercutting of the in the beginning of the movie that was scripted like that but there were so many options on how to do it and the editor's cut was basically what you see in the movie i mean we made one or two little changes like he just nailed it in ways that i never even imagined so that's one thing but then what i will do is i will sit with the editor and spend the next on a feature the next two months three months with them every single day i will not give notes and leave i'm there because it it saves so much more time if you're there. You're, you're you can see if it works. If it doesn't work, you can change it. You don't have to wait. You don't have to reconnoit, recut a whole sequence based on notes, and then come back the next day and see it doesn't work. Then you have to start again, and you've lost yeah. a day. So I also love editing because it's just you and the editor, and it's a very creative environment. On a set, you can't spend. You can't spend three hours, four hours on some sort of idea. I guess you can if you're Ridley Scott or Stanley Kubrick or Steven Spielberg. But if you're making an independent film, you don't have that time. Sure. So, but in editing, you actually do have time. So you can sort of say, hey, man, let's spend the afternoon editing it as if the ending is the beginning of the movie. And you're just completely restructuring the whole thing. And it, it could work. It could not work. It could... It, but it's a way of like experimenting and saying, hey, guess what? If we did that, we never need this scene. We don't need this scene. So I never look at the script again after we're done shooting ever. I never look at it. Script does not exist. Whatever that script was does not exist. What only exists now is the movie to make the best version of the movie. And if that means throwing away your favorite scene, you got to throw away your favorite scene. If it means restructuring your movie, you got to restructure it. And if it means taking the very best thing of your movie and making it the centerpiece, even if it wasn't the centerpiece, you got to figure it out all out. And at least in editing, you have the time theoretically to do that. But of course there's, it's, it's, it's full of its own tensions and problems as yeah. well. But, but um, yeah. So this is a question I'm going to ask for, uh, for my own personal benefit, because I edit whatever, you know, I should, I, I still haven't worked with a separate editor. Uh, how how do you <laughs> graduate from editing your own movies to working with somebody who's like totally different, like who has different ideas entirely? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. Um, there's a few filmmakers who edit their own movies. Mm -hmm. You know, Steven Soderbergh edits his own movies under a pseudonym. Um, so do the Coen brothers edit their own movies. Yeah. And I, I understand that if that's... Uh, for certain filmmakers, that complete control mm. makes sense for them. And, you know, Steven Soderbergh shoots in the morning, edits at lunch, 
and then and then shoots whatever else he needs in the scene because he's edited the scene. He knows, hey, guess what? I I actually need a close up of something, and then he shoots a close up, and then they're done. I mean, it's a it, he's, he's brilliant. Yeah. I love working with an editor, just like I like working with a cinematographer, and just like I like working with a costume designer. I and just like I, I like to hear other ideas. I, I'm an idea. I, I'm someone who uh, takes ideas and then molds them into my, in a way, like molds them into what I want to say. So if I didn't have an editor, I would only have my version of the movie, which is going to be what I end up with anyway. I mean, it will be my version of the movie, but why not have someone else's input? Because if they're coming up with great ideas or they're solving problems, I mean, I can't tell you how many situations I've gotten out of where an editor has solved the problem. You know, they've just solved the problem. I remember I made this movie, The Matador, that Pierce Brosnan was in, and I made it about 15 yeah. years ago. And there's, this, there's a sequence in the movie. It's not particularly memorable, but there's a sequence in the movie where the guy, the two guys, Pierce Brosnan and Greg Kinnear, are walking down the street. They're having a fight. And then they, they, end, up, they end up going to a restaurant and, and having conversation. And in the original version we shot, they end up walking down the street. They have a fight. They go their separate ways. And then the next, later in the day, they end up meeting and going to the restaurant. And I remember it was just like a weird, slow part of the movie when it shouldn't have been. And I remember my editor going, well, why don't they walk down the street, not have the fight and go to the restaurant? And I'm like, really? And then she's like, yeah, it should just be a fun afternoon until the end of the restaurant scene where there's a problem. She's like, you're repeating the same beat. They fight before they go to the restaurant, they go to the restaurant, they fight again. Like, just have them go walk down the street and go right to the restaurant, lose the end of the that. And I'm like, well, Greg Kinnear is wearing a different shirt. He's gone home and changed. And she's like, yeah, it's a totally different shirt, but he's wearing the same jacket. No one's going to notice. Oh. And I'm like, they're going to notice. And she's like, no one's going to notice. And I'm like, okay. And we did it. The thing flows perfectly. No one has ever noticed it, ever, never. I've never read or heard one person notice it. All the continuity. <laughs> and, 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 and so this is an editor who's saying, listen, I'm thinking about the big picture of your movie, the, the, the flow of your film. And so I think it's enormously important to have an editor because I think that they are a real fresh set of eyes, especially when you're tired at the end of a long process of making a movie, you're tired. You've seen the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Part of editing is being able to actually watch it with fresh eyes. Having two people there is, makes it. So what you're going to end up doing when you finally find an editor you want to work with, you're going to have to trust in yourself that you still have final say. You're not giving final cut to this editor. This editor is there to help you. So they're going to be, in a way, making your life easier and theoretically helping you. So they may suggest and they may be like, you know, you don't need those first four lines of the scene. And in your head, you'd always, and if you're cutting it, you're keeping it in. But if they're looking at it like, I don't need these four lines, just start on this line. And you might argue with them. And if you disagree with them, then you'll keep those four lines. But you might also look at it and go, this is actually a really fresh way of approaching this scene. I would have never thought of this. I can't tell you how many times I have been in a situation where I, I would never have thought of this, but I like it. And the great thing as a director is if it works, you get all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is true. So since you were talking about collaborating, you know, basically trusting your editor and 
believing that they would, you know, bring out the best. Uh, how do you, you know, speaking of collaboration, how do you, uh, bring, you know, get everyone to bring out that A game on set? Because not every day is, they don't start, you know, enthusiastic as uh, they probably should. It, you have low energy days. How do you, you know, push through those? Listen, everyone has low energy days. It happens. Um, uh, uh, you know, I do think that like if, if people feel like what they're working on is good and that the people making it are decent people who are articulating their vision and they are passionate, it does trickle its way down. You know, it's like if it, I come in every day very organized. I know what I want to do. There's a level of confidence with the crew that they're not going to be wasting their time, that the, that the hard work is going to be worth it and that, that will make our day and that there'll be these little victories. And you have to, you know, you have to treat people with respect. Sometimes if someone's like a, a bad energy person, they may be wrong for your show. I mean, I, my wife jokes that I fire at least one person per project, you know, and it's not... It, it, and it's true. And it's not a pleasant thing to do. You know, I, I, it's my fault that they were hired. So I've made a mistake. But their energy is wrong. They're a negative person. They're weirdly combative. They're, they, there's an, you know, the actors don't like them for some reason. Mm. You know, like there, there's, there, there's, this happens. Or, or they're going, they're somehow stopping the best version of this. Now, obviously, if you're making a short film and you have no money and there are people doing you a favor and you're shooting for two days, you're not probably firing anyone, nor could you even afford to or whatever because you're probably not even paying them. But, but as you start doing this in the business, you, you ultimately realize that there, and this is true of your normal social life. There's, there are my, fr my best friend's friend annoys me. Like that's just part of life. So if they annoy you, don't spend much time with them. So if there's someone on a, on a regular film set, there's a hundred people. So there's, the likelihood is that there's someone who's not going to work out or might, by, might be leading a negative energy. I just think that like, you have to be pretty cutthroat about it. I mean, you are, um, in, the, in the case of The Perfection, yes, it was a $4 million movie and we shot it really fast, but that's still $4 million. Like if anything's stopping me from making the best movie I can make in, in 24 days, I'm going to get rid of that obstacle. There's just no point. I'd rather, you know, there was someone on the perfection who's in, who had a real negative energy and it was a controversial fire because they had an important position, but I did it because, and, and my God, it just changed everything. Like the set, set went from tense to not tense. And it was like, well, it was, it was good. It wasn't pleasant firing them. And they were a dick when they were fired and didn't handle it gracefully. And fuck them because, you know, a lot of time though, people do understand, you know, it's just, it's tough stuff. You're in charge of a corporation. As a director slash producer, you're in charge on the perfection. I had a $4 million company. I am in charge of that $4 million company. Someone is giving me that money. I have to deliver the best product I can. If I were making paper cups and I had $4 million in three months to make the best paper cup, I would do what I had to do. And if someone was stopping me from making the best paper cup, I would get rid of them too, because I only have four months. I don't have four years to do this. I, I have really four like months. You, uh, sorry to interject. I really like how you can refer to it as a $4 million company, referring to the entire production as a company. Could you just you know, elaborate a little bit more on this, that kind of viewpoint? Well, I mean, you're, you 
this is your project if you're the writer director you've raised the money you have put together the group of people and no matter if whether it's a short film or a super low budget indie or a regular budgeted indie indie or whatever this is your group of people this is your company you're in charge of this money you can't you can't you can't treat it badly or you won't get money again you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like one of the reasons I've always been able to, to get work, knock on, on wood, is, is I, I'm, I'm responsible. You know, there is a sense of responsibility. I'll fight for things I need and I will, I, will, I will really fight for things I'm passionate about. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to make my schedule. I'm going to do what I need to do to make the movie on budget. And this is a company. We're a company in charge, given this task of making this movie. And we should, we should, we should understand that, and and as and as the director, in many ways, you're the CEO. You're the you're, you're really in charge of it. And so, if things are are, are stopping the, the the company from making the product, now I don't believe that art is a product. And I think there's certainly, I think it is a product on one level. But I do think that, like an as an artist, you also need to treat it as an art form. And that is, you know, it's one thing if you're a painter, because that's other than the cost of paint and canvas, it's it's just you and it's not that expensive. But if you're spending $4 million on a feature film, it's pretty expensive. And so you have to be responsible. You can't just look at it as your as your own art project, you know? So, so yeah. even if you're making, a, even if you're making, uh, I, and plenty of people, I've made low budget, I made a, you know, $50,000 sh- uh, feature years ago, you know? And that's where you're getting everyone working for free. You're, you basically have no money for anything. It's still a company, you know, it's still like you have to make sure everyone feels like they're part of it. They have to make sure everyone as you know, feels ownership of it in some way. And you also have to be tough about making sure that, that, that it's going to be done because what you don't want to do is, 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 is spend a year of your life and basically all your savings and everything. And then, and other people's savings and time and then end up with something that could have been better if you had been a smarter gotcha. um, producer, director. That's beautiful. That's, that's brilliant. Uh, luckily, I've, been, I've, I've had this team that I've been working with for the last five years and we've established that kind of bond where you know, we've only done uh, low budget short films, but we are about to graduate into a feature. Yeah. So what sort of advice do you have for filmmakers graduating from shorts to features? Well, listen, it's, there's not a lot of economic upside to short films. There is, there can be, but it's not like, um, it's rare. So, so short films in many ways are done for two reasons. As you know, they're done either as an artistic expression because it's fun and you want to do it. And, and it's also done as a calling card in a way for, for, to be able to show people when you're trying to raise real money to make a movie that you're, that you know what you're doing and quite frankly it helps you know what you're doing because it's training i think on a feature you just have to be aware that now there's like a um there's a there's an actual commercial viability to here it's going to cost more money it's going to take more time if it doesn't work um you know there's more pressure on you to make it work and and all of that but you know the 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 basic mechanisms the same you just have to work significantly harder and your brain needs to expand because you're not thinking about five scenes you're thinking about 50 scenes you're not thinking about 
you know, five minutes, you're thinking about 90 minutes. So you have to open your brain to, 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 to allow that change. But, you know, again, it's, filmmakers need to just, you just need to, if you want to be making movies your whole life, which filmmakers want to be able to do, then you've got to figure out what is your voice. What, it took me a long time, actually, for me to figure out my voice. I, I, some people, I wish I had done it earlier, in a way. I felt like I spent a lot of my career trying to be someone else's voice, trying to write screenplays that would sell, you know, which is a guaranteed way to write a screenplay that won't sell. You know, it's, 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 it, but I can't tell you how, many, how long that took before I had the confidence of my, to say, hey, listen, I'm going to just tap into what I want to do. And if you can do that, early so you're not just like hey i'm making something that feels like it's commercial or feel as opposed to i'm making something that i'm gonna love and i get and this is only only i can make this movie you know Essentially, uh, you're making the movie that you want to see the movie that you want to watch you always want to make the movie you want to see you know i mean at the end of the day I mean, yeah. and, and, and if other people want to see it, that's, that's amazing, yeah. <laughs> you know. But if you start making movies, and listen, Marvel makes movies, they, they do very interesting thing. They get indie filmmakers and then give them $300 million to make a movie that they want other people to see. So they're trying to get like a combination of the best innovation of being creative mixed with a full marketing machine that that knows what the hell they're doing in terms of giving the audience exactly what they want so there are various areas of the film business but as you start in as making low budget features it's the more it can be from your heart in some capacity the smarter the better the movie's going to be gotcha so we're in the last 10 minutes of the session and already it's been uh, mind opening for me and I hope the audience as well. So I just want to uh, know, uh, you know, the, the last few questions. Like, I want to kind of know about the marketing side of things. How much do you, as a director, think about the marketing side? Like, I think you have, to, you have you you have to um, think of it in some level. I mean, as your movie progresses, you know, when we sold the perfection to Netflix, we we there was a lot of discussion about that and. One of the things I was excited about with Netflix was I knew they wouldn't have to cut a trailer that gave the whole movie away. I knew they would give some of the movie away, mm -hmm. but they didn't need to get people to open their wallets. They didn't need to get, you know, when you, when you see trailers for movies, they're saying, this is what you need to get a babysitter. You need to, to, to you know, drive to the theater. You're probably going to have dinner. This is going to be an expensive night. So we're going to show you as much of the movie as we can to try and make sure that you pick this movie to go see because here it is. And with the perfection, because there were so many plot twists, I was terrified that a trailer was going to have to show more of the movie than, than would, would, would be necessary to, you know, it would be necessary to get them to go to see it in the, in the theater, but it would ruin it. But with Netflix, we were like, from the very beginning, I'm like, please don't show anything after the 40 minute mark other than in just little cl clips. Don't give it, don't give away that this guy's a bad guy. Don't give away that they're in cahoots. Don't give away. And so I knew that on Netflix, they could cut a trailer that even though it does give away a big moment, it doesn't give away all the big moments. And, and, and they agreed to a one minute trailer as opposed to a two and a half minute trailer. And 
I really appreciated that. So I was very involved in that. I was very involved in the poster. I was very involved in the, in the, in the catch line. And I've been lucky in all of my movies to work with the marketing people at these companies. You, you have to befriend them as quickly as you can. And genuinely, the people who are doing your posters and cutting your trailers are, are usually really cool people. They're creative people. And the more you can befriend them and more they feel like you're enjoying what they're doing and you're in, they're enjoying what you're doing, then you can really have a, have a say in how your movies are marketed. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win every argument. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to go the way you want. Mm -hmm. And I've had things go badly and, you know, as much as anyone, but I've always enjoyed the, the process. And I'm one of those people who's like, I'm really proud of the trailers to my movies and I didn't cut them. You know, someone else cut them, but I was involved. I gave notes. I was there. And I'm really proud of the posters of my movies. I know these are little things, but I grew up with movie posters on my wall. So I care about movie posters, you know. So, you know, I had my, uh, posters of my favorite movies on the wall. I want someone to have posters of my movie, you know, that sort of thinking. And But it doesn't, I don't necessarily think about that at the mm. beginning stages, not when I'm writing, not even when I'm directing. Sometimes I'll be on set and go, this is a cool image. Mm. Let's make sure that we get some good photographs of it or whatever. But, but in general, you know, I'm someone who, who, who uh, thinks that you should be as involved as you possibly can in every element of your movie, because it is your movie at the end of the day. And uh, what about the reception? How do you deal with uh, positive and negative reception? We had to talk about both sides of the, sides of the Well, you, you, you get them both. I mean, I've gotten some really great reviews and I've gotten some really nasty reviews, you know. And it's, it's a bummer part of the process. I mean, at the end of the day, we live in not only are real reviewers saying stuff, but the public is saying stuff on Twitter. You know, you can mm -hmm. get, a, you get a lot of love and you get a lot of hate. I've gotten a lot of like, this, this is, hey, Salty Shep on Twitter. This is the greatest movie ever. And then sometimes I get, hey, Salty Shep, uh, uh, go fuck yourself. Your movie sucked. Like, so you have, you have, to, you have to live, live with that. And, and it's tough. You know, it's very vulnerable. It's like, hey, I just had this baby. Here's my beautiful baby. Like, no one ever says to someone with a beautiful baby, God, your baby is ugly man that baby is ugly no one has ever said that even if they think it they've never <laughs> said it to a to a new parent but this is the same thing you've made this baby you spent a year on this baby not more than nine months on this creative yeah. baby and people feel absolutely fine telling you to go fuck yourself you've made a piece of shit but it is uh, conversely you also get a huge amount of love and you hear from people all over the world and and it makes it makes life really good in so many ways. Like to know that people have seen your movie and are, are into it, and hearing about it. I love film festivals. I can't wait for COVID to be over so that I can start going to them again. I think it's a great place to show your movies. And in yeah. as as we get into a more fully digital uh, streaming world, where ninety nine percent of movies other than Avengers movies are going to just be on streaming. Film festivals still allow you to see your movie with an audience. If you've got a film that's playing film festivals, you can show your movie 40, 50 times if you really, you know, give yourself the time to travel for film festivals. And that's amazing. You're getting all that feedback. You're getting all that thing. And I'll quickly tell you 
just to answer your question about public reaction, I, I had a movie at a film festival, I had a film thing, and at the end of the movie, there was a line of people wanting to shake my hand or whatever. It was great, and I was signing autographs. People were telling me how great I was, and it was just amazing. And there was a girl at the end of the line, and she was really cute, and she was looking at me. And I was like, oh, this, what is this girl's going to tell me how great I am? And she just said, I wanted, I waited on this line just to tell you that I hated your movie. <laughs> this is, this is what, this is what life is. You never know what to expect, right? Exactly. <laughs> so we are in the final three minutes and uh, one final question before we wrap up. What advice do you wish you had got at the start of your career? Well, that's a good, that is a, that is a great question. I mean, um, well, I'll tell you, two, this is a, one that is so minor, but it is something I actually think about. Mm -hmm. I wish I had kept a list of everyone in the business that I ever met. Mm -hmm. A list with like who they are, what they did, what we talked about, whether we had a connection. Because I've met over 30 years, tons of people and work with tons of people. Man, it would be great to have a list of like, oh man, that guy, I remember him from seven years ago. He was such a fan. And, and, he, and, and he, he ran this like company that made um, balloons. I loved him and I'm now doing this movie where I need balloons. I should call that dude. Like I wish, I know this is crazy, but it happens. So, so this is a, the most minor thing, but I wish I had done that. And I do think, you know, it, it, just as a piece of advice is, you got to understand that there's going to be ups and downs in this business and the people who survive in it really can handle it. So be smart with your money. When you get a little bit of money, don't fucking blow it. Save as much as you can. Know that there's going to be ups and downs that you can, that you literally can um, win awards one year and be, and have no one return your phone calls the next year. It just happens. And you have to just accept that and just say, okay, I'm going to keep going because I, I, it's fine. I mean, I, 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 have, I have seen the ups and the downs and I've gotten through all of them with just my own belief in myself and that I would do it. But it, it, it can get scary. And I think that like you just have to, you know, if there's never a, a golden yeah, there's, there's, never, there's never a golden ticket in terms of your career. You have to always work all the time. That's, that's beautiful. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and you know enlighten us with your knowledge. I think this warrants the second episode, so until such time, uh, people, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thank you so much. It was super fun.